The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Lord, we, we come now to hear from you and your word. We come now trusting in the power of your spirit who wrote this word and who will enliven our hearts to it. Lord, we trust in your purposes this morning, and we're praying for your grace, Lord, for a word of comfort and conviction, a word of encouragement and exhortation, a word that would pierce through the bone and marrow and reveal all of our thoughts in all of our ways. So, Lord, would you come and help us see you as king and help us be reminded of your kingdom that we might leave here changed in wanting to live more for you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I, I dive in today, let me give you just a little road map of the next few weeks so that you can just kind of be aware of where we're at in the life of our church. So, Today, I'm going to be preaching on the themes of ethnic harmony and sanctity of life together. It sounds like a big task. It might be. We'll find out together here in a few minutes. We're going to do that together because because next week, uh, Jonathan Lehman will be here to address the elders. And so we at the South Congregation grabbed him and asked him if he would preach here next Sunday morning. And he's going to be preaching on the local church. The week after that, I'm also going to be preaching on the local church. And the way that we're viewing that is kind of a one-two punch mini-series to give you a a vision for why the South Elders in particular believe that moving towards three distinct churches is more biblically faithful to what we see in the New Testament. We want to lead with the Bible and with vision, so consider this a one-two punch coming in the next two weeks. And then the week after that, which will be the first week in February— we'll be starting a series on the book of Genesis. And I'm thrilled about that series. So look for announcements that will be coming. We're going to get you some scripture journals that you can take notes in with us throughout the book of Genesis. There will be a reading plan for you to read along with us. We're going to dive in to Genesis and walk through that for a while together starting the first week of February. So let's, let's dive into this now. And so what I want to do this morning is, is as we t- think about ethnic harmony, we think about sanctity of life, one of my burdens is that we'd realize that the undercurrent of what's going on in these issues in our culture, but not just in our culture, but in the world all around us. This is, these issues are not just American issues. And what I want us to do is realize, what, what's the undercurrent? What's the root of these issues? So what I'm going to posit it as is that we live in a world that wants the kingdom, but doesn't want the king. A world that wants the kingdom, but doesn't want the king. Now, it's hard for us to imagine exactly what it would be like to live under the rule of a king. It's not something we're very familiar with in our culture. But so often, the, the welfare and the life of the people was directly connected to the goodness and kindness of the king. If you had a good and kind king, your life was pretty good. If you had a bad and torturous kind of king, your life was pretty rough. And it was a happy thing to obey 
a good and kind king who would bless the people. In other words, the people would learn that under the rule of a good and kind king, it was good to live out the moral implications of that king's reign. His goodness and kindness would become infectious among the people. Well, as we'll move to the scene of the Garden of Eden in just a minute, and then for a while in a few weeks when we start Genesis, we'll see that there's never been a more good kind, merciful, and just king as our God. Never. Right? His goodness and his greatness is completely unmatched. He had provided in the garden all humankind could ever imagine and provided it in lavishness. Not just enough, but lavishness. It was a good and happy thing to live under his Rule. You can go read Genesis 1 and 2 this week and see what a good and happy thing it was to live under his rule. And it was a good and happy thing, therefore, to live out the moral implications of his reign, to become more like him as you lived under his rule. And, and the implication that I think our world has forgotten is that he is the creator king And therefore, he gets to decide how his creation will live, and he alone knows how his creation will flourish. And fellowship and worship and obedience to him would therefore mean a happy and flourishing people and a happy and flourishing world. And today, we're talking about these values we've had at Bethlehem for a long time of sanctity of human life and ethnic harmony And we're talking about these things not because they're the relevant political issues of our day. We're talking about these things because we live in a world that has completely forgotten their creator king, and we want to see and shine the light of Jesus into the dark spaces of our world. So let's just highlight the situation that we're dealing with in our broken world. You can find different statistics on different websites in different places, but there have been approximately 60 million reported abortions in the United States since the Supreme Court made it legal. Approximately 60 million lives. With reports stating almost another million per year. And those are just the reported ones. Those aren't any of the the unreported ones. Now that's a a big deal in our nation, right? But I wonder if you know that that's just a part of the 1.5 billion abortions reported since 1980 worldwide. 1.5 billion worldwide. There is a deep dark stain of racism in America and all sorts of hostility around those issues today. Ethnic hostility is not merely a black and white American issue. There are hateful relations between ethnicities of different and the same colors all around the world. So abortion is an an issue here at home, and it's a big issue around the world. And ethnic hostility has been a big issue here at home, and it is a, a big issue around the world. So we should ask, what do these realities, what does this situation tell us? 
And I think it tells us that we live in a world that has forgotten its created and has forgotten its creator. We live in a world that has decided it gets to play God. The world gets to play God. We live in a world that believes to the very core of its being it gets to do what it wants and can find true happiness outside of the commands of its king. We live in a world that thinks it gets to decide who is valuable and sees other humans as something to use, to be consumed, to be eaten up, and not people to be loved and cherished and respected. So my prayer today is that we'll see what our King says about human beings and that we live here more able, leave here, live more, leave here more able to live as citizens of the kingdom. That's the goal. I want us to see what's underneath all this and leave here able to live remembering our King. So let's read Genesis 1, 26 to 29 together. And see... I want you to see the dignity and the worth and the uniqueness of mankind in this creation. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food." So just a couple of quick observations here about the creation of man. The creation of man is different if you read through Genesis chapter 1. God creates male and female after his likeness. He makes them in his image and he gives them dominion over all of the other creation. These are not animals or plants anymore. This is the crown of creation. These are people made in His image after His likeness. The rest of creation was good, but the creation of man and woman, male and female, in His image and His likeness is what? Very good. It's very good. Verse 31. Humans are created male and female to show the unity and diversity of our God who is three in one. They're made in His image, which means they're meant to be a reflection of Him. They, they reflect their Creator, their King. Now, there are all sorts of ideas out there about what does it mean to exactly be made in the image of God. It means the ability to create, to have reason, to have emotions, to have a moral conscience. And I think all of those are getting at the reality in some measure. But today, I just want to distinguish human creation from all the rest of creation and say that humans are uniquely created to reflect the worth of their king and therefore they are inherently worthy and valuable in a unique way. Alan prayed in his prayer that our our worth flows down from our king. That's exactly right. So when does this start? When does this inherent worth and value reflecting the king's start. I'll just read two verses that shows I believe this starts 
at conception. Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or Psalm 139, 13-14. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Where does personhood and worth starts? I would argue if our worth flows down from our Creator, it would certainly start in the knitting together of the crown of creation, a human being that begins at conception by the Creator. It's when it starts. God knits together every male and female born. God knits together every baby from every ethnicity. God has purposes in babies born healthy and whole, and God has purposes in babies born with deep, deep disabilities. God has purposes for the joy of all peoples, and people become people at conception in the womb. Hopefully, just unpacking a little bit of the image of God, you can already begin to see the horror that abortion and ethnic hostility worldwide are in light of the doctrine of the image of God. What's the implication here of God's creation of us in the image of God? Well, one of them is that creation doesn't get to determine worth based on our own desires or thoughts. Right? Will, will, will the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? Do we get to determine our worth or our value or their worth or their value, whoever they might be? The Creator King determines the inherent worth and dignity of humans by creating them in His own image. And then we see this second, but we see this worth, the worthiness that comes from our King. Then we also see this witness. God has given male and female in His image the command together to go and spread His glory. It says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. I want you to think about what God is saying to humans. What is he saying when he says, be fruitful, fill the earth, multiply, subdue it? He's saying, go reflect me everywhere. Go make sure everywhere that is sees me. Go make sure that everywhere that is knows me. Go make sure that everywhere that is is about me. Right? That's the point of us being made in His image. A bunch of little reflections of God filling the earth. What do you think the point of the earth is? God, the Creator, the King. That's the point. We begin to see that human beings made in His image have this mandate on them to bring His reflection and His reign to the ends of the earth. And if that would happen perfectly, if we never got to Genesis 3, we were saying on Genesis 1 and 2, and human beings just imaged their God, reflected their God, went and subdued creation, the world would be a perfect, happy, flourishing, sweet, God-glorifying place to exist. But that doesn't happen. (laughs) Point number two, claiming the throne of the king. We know that doesn't last. We get to Genesis 3, and it all falls apart. And I'd just like you to think about Genesis 3 in, in this new paradigm, right? Adam and Eve, what do they decide? They decide, we want the kingdom, but not the king. Right? We, we want the kingdom, we want the blessings, we want the goods, we want the stuff. We just don't want the king. We just don't want him over us, ruining our fun. 
They want the benefits without the obedience. Right? They, they want to rule. They want to take what they want when they want it. They decide they will not submit and break fellowship with their king, right? What happens in Genesis 4 right after all that breaks down? Brother hating and murdering brother. Symptoms of anger and hate and disobedience on display immediately. Right? Genesis 2. Man, it's awesome there at the end of Genesis 2. Genesis 3, it's broken. In Genesis 4, there's murder. As we read through Genesis, this is an ugly, messed up book just full of sin and grime and grossness from Genesis 3. Sin enters the world and wrecks everything. We saw earlier that now human beings, though still made in the image of God with intrinsic worth, are conceived in what? Conceived in sin. And so the image is is tarnished and corrupted. It's not reflecting exactly how it ought to be. Humans no longer naturally submit to or have fellowship with their Creator. In fact, I would argue there's a collective forgetfulness that a Creator exists. We've chosen together to just act like He doesn't exist. There's a collective grasping for the throne to do it our way and not submit to a Creator King. And this leads to a variety of ways we rebel against this king and his kingdom. In our own culture, I would argue right now that the highest morality is to look inside yourself, see who you are, see what will make you happy, and then go what? Go do it. <laughs> Immediately. Right? And then in five years, you figure out who you are again, what will make you happy right now, and remake yourself, and then What? Go do it immediately. And it sounds nice on the surface. Who doesn't want to be happy in the moment? Who wants to give up the happiness right now? Who wants to give up instant gratification? But it misses on the reality that we are created and will only truly flourish under the rule of our king. Right? It's easy to look out at the culture and just go, they've lost their minds, right? It's, it's not going well, but, but we do this. We want our own way. We want our own stuff. We want it when we want it without the king. That's what sin is. And I would just argue that isn't this at the heart of the ruling on abortion in the Supreme Court? Right? You get convenience now regardless of the life in you that has no choice. Isn't that just living out the morality of our time? You get the convenience now, regardless of the, the person inside of you that has no choice. Isn't that at the heart of slavery or even the treatment of Native Americans that stains our history? You get your profits now, regardless of brutality towards other human beings. Isn't this the same thing? going on in both of these evils, going on in both of these realities. And if you do studies on emotional health after participation in abortion, you will find this theory is bankrupt and a lie. Completely bankrupt and a lie. And if you look at our current generation that has bought into this morality more than any other, you will find statistics of the highest levels of loneliness, depression, anxiety, anger, and outrage of any generation in America so far. You see, if we don't submit to the king who says every human being has inherent worth and dignity, 
then the only other logical conclusion is to use other humans for our own consumption. And that never brings happiness. It brings instant gratification, but not any kind of lasting happiness. Let me say it again, because I just think it's true. We just got to think about the world we're living in. If we don't submit to the king, who says every human being has inherent worth and dignity, then the only other logical choice is to use other human beings for our own consumption. It's the only other thing that makes sense. We will find ourselves in a culture like that, in an endless cycle of using and being used. That's all that can happen if we don't submit to the king. We will find ourselves in an endless cycle of fight or flight. What else can we do? And as the world gives into this morality, there will not be a spread of the reflection and reign of the true creator king like we saw in Genesis 1, but instead a constant rejection of his reflection and of his reign. What I mean is we will constantly find new ways to reject the worth of the image of God. And we will constantly find new ways to reject that God gets to tell us what is true and where true flourishing happens. Just, that's what's going to happen if you don't submit to the king. Now here's what's crazy. And I'm going to demonstrate it to you. What's crazy is that the world, all the world, I would argue, knows that what God says is true about the worth of people made in his image without ever reading the Bible. And here's how I'll prove it. I was trying to talk to Stone on Thursday night about how we all know the inherent worth of humans without the Bible even telling us. And so here's the example of the story I gave him. So Kelly's mom and dad live out in the country, and my kids love that they have horses, right? So my, my kids love these horses. They're awesome. They love to ride them and get to know them. But I said this to Stone. I said, let's just imagine for a moment, Stone, that grandma and grandpa have fallen on hard times, right? They, they don't have enough money to keep everything going on, and grandpa's got to make a decision. Does he keep the horse or grandma? (laughs) What did Stone say? Grandma! Right? It's obvious. Right? Isn't it obvious that grandma's worth more than the horse? Right? You say, why, Stone? Because she's his wife. That's my grandma. We, We love her. She's mom's mom. Right? She's a human being. We all know this. Right? That's a, a silly story meant to show that it's obvious us, to us that humans have inherent worth. Right? Stone hasn't done any philosophical studies in his life that I know about. Right? Stone isn't digging into sociology and trying to just figure all these things out. He just knows grandma's more important than the horse, as does the whole world. So the whole world knows this, it's obvious, but I want you to think about the world we're living in. Let me give you some examples of the craziness that happens when we reject the king. We live in a world that loses its collective mind over animal cruelty in overseas hunting excursions, but ignores the brutality of image bearers destroyed in abortion. Right now, I'm not saying we should be harsh to animals. We shouldn't. Actually, if you read Genesis 1, I think we can make a case for a dominion that is kind and responsible and all those things. But to lose our mind over Cecil and not the unborn is ridiculous. We live in a world where there is a thing called human trafficking. We live in a world 
where pornography is one of the most profitable industries in our nation, which is blatant consumption of other humans for instant gratification. We live in a world where immigrant refugees are going through unimaginable journeys of hardship and danger just to get somewhere where they can feel safe from violence, sexual assault, and brutality for themselves and their children. We live in a world where to murder a pregnant woman gets you charged with two murders, but to have an abortion is legal. We live in a world where in some states, in some years, more black babies are aborted than born. We live in a world totally confused and hostile about ethnic and racial issues. We live in a world where disability is often a death sentence. And we could put all of this stuff, all of it, under one heading of sin. Here's what I would say all that is. It's simply a partiality that ignores the image of God. It's partiality that ignores the image of God. Our culture thinks, and the world thinks, it decides who is worthy of dignity. God doesn't decide, we decide. Our culture divides people up into subcategories of worth. What color is more worthy? What gender is more worthy? What babies are worthy? What disability makes you unworthy? It plays God and decides who lives and who dies. It uses other human beings and makes these decisions for others for its comfort and convenience for the sake of its own instant gratification. This is a world that has forgotten its creator. This is a world that has made itself king and has forgotten as a creator and that all human beings are made in the image of God. Point number three, called into the worship of the kingdom. So turn to John 3. I'm going to give you a minute to get there. Turn to John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verse 3 together. I hope you're beginning to see the obvious insanity of the world we're living in. But the bottom line is that it's not obvious to most. The world has forgotten the true king and they can't see the true kingdom. So here's John 3. It's Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is coming to figure out what in the world is going on with this Jesus guy. What is he about? What is he bringing? And this is what Jesus says to him in John chapter 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we often celebrate this verse because of all it's saying about what the new birth does for the Christian. However, it's also a telling verse about the condition of the world before this happens. How much can they see? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. There's blindness. It says, they cannot see the kingdom of God. So despite the craziness of the world we live in, We who have been saved by grace, not by our own works, who have been saved by the compassion and mercy of God, not our own pulling up of ourselves by our bootstraps, ought we not have a disposition of compassion towards this world? Right? Christians should be marked by a culture of love and forgiveness, not hate and condemnation. We should not give in to the culture of outrage. We don't fight evil with evil. We come over, we overcome evil with good. But they can't see. 
The king or the kingdom, they cannot operate by the power of the Spirit to begin to live out the righteousness of the kingdom. Anyone in here believe in Jesus? Most of you, good. Right? You an easier one. You normally don't raise your hands for me. Any of you believe you have the Holy Spirit in you? Yes. Any of you still struggle with sin? Struggle to obey Jesus? What's that like without the Holy Spirit? A lot harder. Impossible. And so we should lead with compassion. Our biggest problem in our country and the world is not wrong laws or wrong politicians. Our biggest problem is not Planned Parenthood, though I despise all that they stand for. Our biggest problem is not even the organizations that still openly promote racist agendas, and they're out there. Our biggest problem is blind hearts that cannot see the kingdom of God. Our biggest issue is hearts that love the darkness and therefore do not come to the light. If you read on later in chapter 3, they cannot see the worth of those made in the image of God because they cannot see God. How will you see the worth of those made in the image of God if you can't see the worth of God himself? And yet, while the problem is deeper than sometimes we imagine, it also means our hope is greater. Doesn't it? Doesn't it mean our hope is greater if the problem's that deep? Why do I say that? Because it means we aren't trusting in the next election cycle. We're not trusting in the next elected official. We're not trusting in the right Supreme Court justices or the dismantling of horrible organizations. Where God's righteousness comes to bear and where politicians and laws bring it to bear, I praise God for it. I just don't trust in it. I just don't trust in it. We are trusting in King Jesus and believing He can change the culture of death around abortion and the culture of hate around other ethnicities made in the image of God by changing hearts from the inside out. He can cause the most hateful, vengeful, murderous person like the Apostle Paul to be born again, see the king, and see the kingdom. He can open blind eyes to see him and therefore see the worth of those made in his image. And if those hearts get changed, there's no turning back. We don't have to worry about who comes in the next in four years, right? That is an eternal change. And so we have great hope that our King is still teaching and working by the Spirit like we learned about in Acts. And that He has plans for us to bring sight to the blind, plans for us to bring hope to rebellious hearts by the power of the Spirit as they might see and trust and obey. So let's think about our part for just a few minutes here. Point number four, call to the witness of the kingdom. So just go down a little bit further and we're going to read John three sixteen to 18. John three sixteen to 18 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So, Those who don't believe, the world that we keep talking about that can't see the king or the kingdom, they're condemned already. But why did Jesus come and what's our role now in this broken, condemned world? 
be faithful in pointing to the king. Be faithful in reflecting his good reign to the world. Our ministry is one of reconciliation, not condemnation. The world is condemned already. They don't need any of your condemnation. Our, our job, our role, is one of reconciliation, not condemnation. And so we spend our lives pointing to the eternal salvation that comes through faith in Jesus. In other words, the gospel is the only ultimate solution to the problems of abortion and ethnic hostility because it's the only solution that goes deep enough. <laughs> it's the only solution that goes far enough. It's the only solution that's lasting enough. So what should we do? We should give yourselves... Give your life to loving your neighbors and loving your co-workers and loving your families in word and deed and pray that God gives you moments to speak the gospel of life that they might see King Jesus and begin to live in light of that kingdom. We should be a people that walk in the light and shine that light. Listen to Ephesians 5, 11 to 14 as this, as this calling to the church. It says, Take no part and the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, that's our job, exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So what's our goal as we expose the works of darkness? Our goal is that they become visible. Why do we want them to become visible? So that light breaks in and makes the darkness flee so it becomes light because anything that's visible is light. So the goal is we're we're speaking light. We're saying that's darkness. It's wrong. It's broken. It's sinful. It's not acknowledging the king or the kingdom. We say, do you see it? And our prayer is that they see it. And as light breaks in, they become light. That's talking about the kind of change that the gospel can work. So I want to encourage you to speak the gospel. And I also want you to think about practical ways that you can be a part of things that that shine the light. You should get to know, if you're living in these south suburbs, you should get to know, go to their website, schedule a visit, talk to Shar or Rick. You should get to know, Pilston, (laughs) you should get to know Amnion Ministries. You should get to know them. And the way they walk with women in hard situations. There's going to be a table out in the commons for the next three weeks. And as you learn about what they do and how they walk with women through hard situations, as they educate women in hard times, you will realize who really loves women. Now I'm telling you, it's not Planned Parenthood. It's not that agenda. Right? In fact, one of the interesting things about all of these issues is that as you go and read about human rights and love for women and love for minorities and all these issues we find ourselves embroiled in, go read some atheists and you know who they'll say has made the biggest am- impact in human rights in the world? Christians. Even atheists. Go read Nietzsche. <laughs> go read him and watch him admit, yeah, I don't think their God is real, but I've got to hand it to him. All human rights basically came from Christians. So go get to know Amnion and see how they love women. See how you might give some funding to them or some time to them and walk along with some women in their brokenness. You should get to know Arrive Ministries. 
in these south suburbs and the way they are loving immigrants, new refugees who are fleeing from horrific circumstances and helping them settle. What an opportunity it would be to walk along with a refugee running away from danger and say, you're welcome here. We see you. We are the church and we love you. You should get to know trafficking justice ministries as they walk and shine the light of the ugliness of human trafficking. And by the way, it's right up the street in some measure at that truck stop. Should go to stop at that gas station and eat at that McDonald's. It'd be better if you ate at the taco place. It's better. And go eat there and pray that God would shine the light into that darkness. Wherever we are, we who have been born again to see the King and His kingdom should seek to bring His righteousness to bear, to shine the light, to expose the darkness. Our role is not to bring condemnation, the world has that already, but reconciliation. We must be people that stand against abortion, but are most gracious to those who have participated in one. If that's not who we are, then we've messed it up. Right? And if you're here today, and I, and I know, I know there's going to be people here or watching online, if you're here watching online, if you've participated in that, what I want you to hear more than anything else is that the deepest stains of your life can be completely covered by the blood of Jesus. Not 90% covered, not 95% covered, 100% covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you're welcome here, and we're eager to walk with you. We must be a people that stand against all forms of ethnic partiality and demonstrate, not to stand against it, but demonstrate the love of Christ united in our identity in Christ, not any other identity. We, we have to be that kind of people. Our longing is that the king would be seen in his beauty and the kingdom would be brought to bear. Right? Isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Hallowed be your name. And if that would happen, in as much as it would happen in us, and through us, the little spheres of influence that we inhabit would be places where human beings of every kind and ethnicity and gender and situation would be valued as they should be from conception to death. All the way from conception to death. Human beings would flourish under the rule of the king and the king would receive the glory that he is due. Let's bow our heads. We're going to be heading towards communion, but I'm going to pray for us today. So let's bow our heads and pray. So Lord, you know, you know who's in this room, who's watching or will watch this online and has run away from your rule as king. You know who, who there is in this room and is watching that has not yet seen the kingdom. And Lord, I pray that in this moment you would show them Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they would see the King, the King that was crucified, who came and lived the perfect life that they could never live and died the death they deserved to die and rose again in victory to conquer death on their behalf, that they would see the King and say, I lay down my claim to the throne. And I gladly receive forgiveness and I gladly submit to His reign. Oh God, that you would save sinners like all of us are through the work of King Jesus.
And Lord, I pray for those in this room, Lord, those that have participated in the sins that we've been talking about today, those who have been tricked and fooled by a world that, that speaks lies about what's true of reality, that have participated in all this ugly darkness, Lord, I pray right now that you would overwhelm their hearts with grace. That they would believe what we sang earlier, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Oh God, there is no stain that your blood cannot wash white as snow. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Lord. If we would trust in Jesus, we would not need to be defined by the very worst moments of our life. So I pray for an overwhelming grace. Lord, I pray for grace for this people. Give us grace, Lord, in these hard issues to not respond to a culture of outrage with more outrage, to not think our job is to be the judges bringing about condemnation. Oh God, vengeance is yours. You will make every wrong right. You will punish every sin. It will either be on the cross with forgiveness for those who trusted in or in eternal hell. And Lord, that is enough for us. So God, forgive us where we've seen ourselves as ambassadors of condemnation. Ambassadors of outrage. Lord, even where we've just given into it slightly, where we've seen ourselves distracted. Oh God, would we be a people that is, like you say, being renewed in its knowledge, being changed into the the same image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next. Lord, this this image of God is being more and more renewed by the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to walk out of our sin and freedom to walk out of our shame and freedom to gladly obey our King. God, grant that transforming freedom in your people by the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, would we in our neighborhoods and at our schools and at our sports teams and at our workplaces and in our families or with our next door neighbors and with all the way to the nations or would we be those reflecting your image more and more rightly and more and more brightly as you transform us more and more into it. Oh God, we confess that we need your grace. (laughs) This is too big and it's too much for us, but it's not too big and not too much for you. Thank you that you are a God who brings us new mercies every morning. Thank you that you are a God who promises us eternal life. Thank you that you are a God who promises that death has no final victory. Lord, we worship you. Now we come to your table to eat and drink with your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. 
Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.